Let's play a word association game. I'll say a word. You take a second to think about what notions it conjures in your mind. Certification. Diploma. Credential. Badge. For this episode, we're going to stay on that last one. I'm hoping that after we talk with these two, that whether you believe in the potential the way this group sees it or not, at least you have a different frame with which to consider badges the next time it okay. comes up. I'm Katie Davis, and I'm an assistant professor at uh, the University of Washington in the Information School, and I co-founded and co-direct the Digital Youth Lab there. And my research area broadly is I study what teens do with network technologies, and I try and use those insights to help design more personally engaging uh, learning environments with network technologies. I'm Barry Fishman. I'm a professor in the School of Information and also the School of Education at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Uh, I'm a learning scientist. I study teaching and learning. I'm particularly interested in the ways that we can organize teaching and learning to create more powerful engagement. And uh, over the years, I've been engaged in research on um, teacher learning and trying to think about ways that technology shapes the ways that teachers can learn how to be more uh, effective in the classroom, often in science classrooms. And most recently, I've been thinking a lot about games and learning and learning environments that are sort of naturally engaging because of the way they're designed. Even the naysayers agree on a few relevant points here. Number one, traditional transcripts do not capture the full potential of a person as they venture from one institution to the next in their pursuit of education. Two, test scores like SAT and ACT are a rigged system where scores correlate closely with socioeconomic circumstances. That is, the more wealthy your family, the more likely you are to score well on a college entrance exam. And three, that in educating the whole student, the way many talk about getting beyond reductive measures for performance. It's just as critical that students are learning how to learn as it is that they're experts of content. And part of that is building a new relationship with assessment, one where iteration is rewarding, showing your process is central, and agency, the ability to act on one's own interests and inclinations as a learner, is royalty. Part of what we're discussing today is how technology can help us add balance to a system that has favored some people and types of learning experiences over others. But like in so many cases, it seems that a constraint of at least equal proportion is the human capability to bend away from the mechanics of a system that whether we like it or not, just is. This is No Such Thing, a podcast about the promise and reality of learning with technology. I'm Mark Lesser. You guys are in town for uh, AERA, which I don't even know what AERA stands for. I have to relearn it every year because I get the American and the Association uh, mixed up. It's the, Americ the American Educational, Educational Research, Research Association. Association. Got it. But it's it's an international crowd. It's not huge. just Not just for Americans. Well, it's about 15,000 people, I think. Yes, very, very large. 15,000. It's like, um, what is it like? It's like the Comic-Con for education nerds. Yeah. Yeah? I think that's a pretty good way to sum it up. Yeah. I, I wish there was more cosplay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Not Maybe not as many sort of plushy experiences. <laughs> not as many, no. Right. So this is where... Um, 
academics, researchers, hopefully some practitioners. Definitely practitioners. Great. Um, yeah. Come to talk about um, global research that's happening in the field of education. Yes. Um, super exciting. How's you, Katie, you got here at midnight, so you've had no experience yet. No, no experience. Uh, Barry, was there anything last night at AERA? It started on. It started two days ago, actually. And yeah. There's been a lot of different meetings. I, I myself didn't get here until yesterday in the evening. Got it. But based on long experience, I know what it's like. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, well, I am super grateful to have the two of you here uh, at Mouse, and and uh, we're talking today about badges. Um, we're also talking today, we're going to start with a vocabulary lesson. We're also talking today about alternative credentials. We're talking about alt credentials. We're talking about digital badges. What else am I missing? Micro micro credentials. Micro credentials. Thank you. (laughs) Um, all ways of talking about the same thing, but I actually, I, I don't want to start with, um, badges. I want to start with, I think I want to start with assessment. Um, and, Maybe ask you, Katie, to talk about um, standard assessments and uh, what typically we know about how learning gets measured and then um, how those measurements get uh, transferred or used as sort of currency into the next experience for a learner. Well, assessment is not my area of expertise, (laughs) and so, Barry, you may be able to speak better to this. But, I mean, generally, the the standard um, progression is that you have learners in a classroom, and generally, and they are given some sort of an assessment, like a test, usually. Um, More and more, it's a standardized test, and um, they are graded on it. And um, they get some sort of a grade that goes on their transcript. And then they have a bunch of grades on a transcript. And then that eventually gets assessed by um, a college admissions officer. So this is sort of a very standard, uniform, not very good way of predicting whether or not um, someone's going to succeed in college and beyond. Yeah. Um. Anything to add to that, Barry? Well, let me generalize it a little bit more because, in general, in anything you're doing, there's a there's a there's a there's a performance component, mm-hmm. and hopefully there's an assessment component and a feedback component. And maybe that's in a formal learning setting, like a classroom. Maybe it's in an informal setting where you do something, and what you want is someone to help you understand or for yourself to be able to look at it and judge how did I do, and what could I do better. So we often break assessment up into two phases, and it, it, you, the one is the process feedback. How, how am I doing, and what can I do better? And we call that kind of assessment formative assessment, meant to form or inform the quality of your work. Yep. And then there's another kind, um, which I think Katie was uh, talking about more directly, which is the summative assessments. So when we're when we've completed an activity, what's the record of what we did there that gets communicated for whatever purpose? To somebody else. Yeah. Do you guys have um, one of the things I like to think about is uh, the stuff I did as a young learner, and I'm I'm you know absolutely still a learner as as are all of us. Um, do you guys have things from when you were a younger learner that uh, you wish 
counted in some way or that would have enriched potentially how people sort of saw you as a learner that just weren't counted? They like went into the abyss mm -hmm. of your experiences. Well, listening to you ask me that question makes me think back to when I was a fourth grade teacher and all of the cool learning that I saw my students do that I knew I would never capture in any sort of formal, interesting way. And I did, and actually a lot of the really cool learning I saw, this was in the early 2000s, happened when I was on lunch duty. Um, oh, that's fine. And just the types of games that kids would make up for themselves. A lot of times it involved Pokemon. So, you know, here we are almost 20 years later and it's still Pokemon, yeah. <laughs> but Pokemon um, cards. And I just remember kids coming up to me and describing the games that they were playing and, and, you know, there was a lot of what if, and wouldn't this be cool? And just watching them learning so much um, on the playing field um, and knowing that that wasn't going to make it into the classroom in mm. any sort of formal way. Yeah. How about you, Mary? So I, I would, I, I think I'm a sort of very straight arrow kind of learner. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, in a, in a pre-conversation, I believe I alluded to myself as boring. <laughs> <laughs> Not a badge. Not a bad <laughs> correct. Um, so for me, I, I really felt like I was mostly focused on the things that I was being assessed on in school. Yeah. And, uh, but I also want to, you know, there are things I did outside of school. I mean, speaking of badges, I was in scouting. Mm -hmm. um, I was not in sports, but, you know, people get engaged in sports. I feel like all those things are somehow noted, if not in your transcript. Those yeah. are the kinds of things that seem to get communicated forward as things that are who you are as a learner. Um, but I, you know, there's all this interesting variation that gets lost. Yeah. Um, so I can't, I'm having trouble thinking of a particular thing I did that wouldn't be recognized in some way yeah. that way, but I'll bet you by the end mm -hmm. of this conversation, you'll we'll have come up with something. But it is interesting because when I was thinking of my own personal experience, I was thinking, okay, so I did some sports and that was always recognized by if I, you know, I played tennis. So if I won a tournament, I'd get a trophy and then I would have that record. I played cello and this was in Bermuda. So it was a, the British system. So a British examiner would come down once a year and examine us and we'd get a certificate. So that was an accomplishment that I had gone to grade four, grade five of my cello. Mm. Um, so there's always some sort of a marker. And I, my, my sister was an avid swimmer and she would get bad, you know, badges that um, for each accomplishment in swimming. So yeah. it is interesting how we do find ways, but then they often, those, they're pretty, those examples are pretty analog and they stay within that context generally. Yeah. I think about, um, so it's baseball season and, uh, I have an eight year old boy, um, who is pretty, he's getting into baseball cards. Uh, and I was the, which delights me because I was obsessed <laughs> with baseball cards. any, any kind of, I was really obsessed with memorabilia as a kid. Um, but I loved baseball cards and I did and, too. Um, I was obsessed with you? baseball cards and I was not obsessed with baseball, but cards I was right. So there's like, there's <laughs> like the, the, um, there's, there's all kinds of things I love about, uh, memorabilia, but, um, I always think to myself, you know, had a, um, 
had a math teacher, a good math teacher, known how into reading the back of baseball cards I was, I'm, I might have had a totally different math experience. Um, so anyway, that's mine, baseball cards. Well, I and mean, since you mentioned math, I mean, I, I can tell the opposite kind of story about a time when assessment actually got in the way. That's mm. Captain Segway because that's my next question. <laughs> Fantastic. I mean, so in fourth grade, they administered those little tests they give you in September to figure out what class, what track you should be in. Are you in high, middle, or low math? Maybe right. they don't do that anymore, but they did that when I was in the fourth grade. And, and I momentarily forgot how to carry in subtraction. Into the low math group I went. Yeah. And I never recovered. So my math capability is is several years behind that of, I mean, I think the years is probably not relevant. But, but <laughs> when I got into high school, I was always a course or two behind the people who got put in the high math group. And it all comes down to one assessment mm. that I, when I got home that day, I said, oh, wait, I remember now. Yeah. And that was an example of a, a kind of assessment that shaped my own thinking and math in a very profound way for the rest of my academic career. Yeah. And and the thing I regret about those experiences for myself is that um, I don't think we always appreciate how much the institution, how that lever in the institution uh, impacts how we cultivate an identity as a young person, right? Because we, you know, you hear adults all the time say like, oh, you know, ask mom, I'm not really a math, a math person. Um, or, or the million other ways that people sort of deal with their identity as it relates to uh, compensating for um, ways that they've shaped an academic identity that aren't necessarily fair to what their actual skills are, um, but typically are a reflection of an experience they had related to an assessment. Um, there are ways that assessments are, um, I mean... Uh, Assessments are so important. Um, and so I think one of the misunderstandings about um, why we're having a conversation about alternative credentials and alternative ways of um, these things are not assessments. They are um, – they characterize uh, an experience that has culminated maybe in an assessment – um, but, uh, assessments, I think one of the misunderstandings is that, uh, it's a, um, it's pushing against assessment as an instru as a, as a tool in education. And I don't think that's the case. I think it's actually about adding dimension. Does that sound right to you guys? I, I would just add, you know, it seems very intuitive to me that if, if you can't measure something, you can't improve it. So that's yeah. a, sort of the fundamental behind the idea of assessment. But where we get confused a lot is in believing that the, the assessment that we're using is an accurate measure of the thing we care about. And we, that's sometimes called construct validity by assessment folk. Mm -hmm. But the idea that this test measures what I can do in math is not really true. It's one way to measure something. And... Um, and then we, we start to assume that those measures are valid and they become everything. Mm -hmm. And we start to actually replace maybe better ways of looking at things with the standard ways. So we, we tend to fall to things that are easy to do and easy to compare. Yeah. And they may, may or may not actually be a good way to indicate 
what somebody knows or can do. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think of it also makes me think that there's a distinction, two really important distinctions. One is um, how you assess. So getting at the construct validity of any given assessment is this really measuring what you think it's measuring. But then there's what are you assessing? And, um, you know, are you just assessing the kind of math that is going on inside of a classroom at the end of a given amount of time? Or are you going to break it up a little bit and assess smaller increments and maybe assess in different contexts um, where math comes up? Yeah. Can we can we um, I want I feel like construct validity is uh, an important idea. Um, can you just say two more sentences about construct validity, what it is? In the simplest terms, is the thing I'm, am I able to measure the thing I think I'm measuring? So if I want to measure your temperature, I use a thermometer, and I can almost directly measure your body temperature. But if I want to measure your understanding of math, what do I do? Well, I could give you a bunch of problems to solve, and I could watch how you solve them. And if, if I care about your ability to solve those kinds of problems, I think that's sort of high, a highly valid way for me to do that. How about a multiple choice test? So I'm, I'm assessing a bunch of kids in a class. I'm going to use a multiple choice test to do it. Is that I'm starting to lose some of that direct measurement of what you're able to do? Yeah. How about a standardized test where I'm trying to gauge what your academic aptitude is? Um, and I'm going to give you 40 questions in math, and it's meant to represent your sort of mathematical capability now at the end of high school. Yeah. It's super distant from whether or not you can actually do math. Sometimes the test gets confused with um, your ability to read. So there is a, lots of evidence over time that standardized test taking is really another way to measure literacy. And people who are good readers have an edge. So your math test is also a reading test. And these are ways that we start to talk about. I, I try to think of it as how directly am I measuring the thing I care about? And, how, and then we get further and further away from that as we get into more bigger systems. So um, if staying with our baseball analogy, um, poor construct validity would Mm be, uh, I'm going to create a standardized way of measuring whether a batter, somebody, somebody who plays offense is going to be a great offensive player by their stance. Poor construct validity. Probably. Yeah. Probably. Because they you're not actually measuring any of the the output, right? Like you don't actually get a sense it's of whether somebody thing can you hit. care about. Right. Right. Okay. Making sure I, I understand our uh, I mean, but this is what people do is they look at what's related to what. So I don't know, maybe stance matters. Maybe it's the most important thing <laughs> in right. hitting, right? Right. Probably not, but maybe. Yeah. So then you start to get into these proxies. Got it. So um, proxy is a good uh, a good word um, because the proxies uh, flashing forward um, proxies are what we use to, um, for example, uh, kids use to apply to college, um, and the known the most the most used proxies at the moment are still 
grade point average, um, SAT score, although separate episode, we'll talk about the many higher education institutions that are now going uh, test optional. Um, and then uh, potentially they're using things like uh, AP courses and um, whether or not someone has sort of risen to that level of, of uh, academic rigor. Any that I'm missing? Um, that sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. That's if you look at what's striking to me is if you look at the common app right now, um, I've never done it, but I'd like to put a ruler to the common app. And if you see the amount of space uh, that's given to uh, the sort of the standard stuff versus the little section that you have for other mm -hmm. experience, um, I think that's a really good way to get a sense of what we've valued in the systems that that we are living and working, we are working in um, right now. But uh, a lot falls through the cracks, right? So the, the proxies are a little broken. And I think that's where um, some of the hypothesis about where alternative credentials um, might make a difference come into play. Um, so Katie, Will you talk a little bit about the context where you've been doing some work with, um, uh, we'll call them digital badges. You call them whatever you're calling them in your mm -hmm. in your research. Because um, I think examples is a great way for people to wrap their heads around how this might work. Sure. So thinking about things that fall through the cracks, a, a typical, a very common context for learning not to be assessed or recognized in any formal standard way is learning that happens outside the classroom. And uh, so I've been working for the last four, probably, yeah, at least four years at the Pacific Science Center in Seattle. And they have this amazing program there for high school students called the Discovery Corps program. And it's an incredible program that uh, usually the students start when they're in ninth or 10th grade. And they are trained in all of the science that you see at the science center. And they're trained to not just um, know the science at the, in the different exhibits, but also engage visitors in, um, in interpreting the exhibits. And so they are, they become science interpreters. And the great thing about this program is they are paid. So um, they treat it as a job. And so students from low income backgrounds are able to participate because they get paid. So they don't have to just do this as a volunteer type thing. And um, so there's a lot of learning going on here. They're learning really deep science. They're also learning really impressive communication skills. So these students, the way they communicate as high school students, they're so much more poised than I was as a high school student. Um, and so it's, it's really great. And they are very proud of what they do. And they're very keen to include um, mention of their Discovery Corps experience on their applications to college and internships and scholarships. But outside of Seattle, not, not many people really know what the Discovery Corps is. And they don't 
maybe don't even know about what this uh, science center is. So, you know, it's sort of different if I think, you know, if you say on an application that you are an Eagle Scout, that probably has some currency across the country. If you say that you've reached this level in um, the Discovery Corps program at the Science Center in Seattle, it may not mean much if you're applying to a college on the East Coast. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so we, in that context, we have been uh, designing a digital badge platform with the students and the program coordinators at the Science Center for the last few years. And it's really a way to recognize in some formal way and in some public transferable way that you can share across outside of the science center, um, the type of learning and the type of skills that students are gaining as they go through this program. And so now we've got this um, fairly robust badge platform where students um, are recognized each time they accomplish something um, notable at in this program, they earn a badge and um, they can curate their badges into portfolios and share those portfolios to whomever they want outside of the um, uh, Discovery Corps program. And they can show a little bio of themselves and explain what these badges mean as well. And hopefully that's a way to start documenting in a more systematic way the kind of learning that they're doing in this program. Yeah. Interesting. So, so before I ask other questions about it, um, when you say badge platform, mm -hmm. just to clarify, we're talking about a place on the internet mm -hmm. that kids come, they probably sign in with an email. They do. Yes. So this is when a, it's, yeah, it's a badge website. It's just a website, actually yeah. a website that uh, we created with concentric sky, um, which is a company that has been doing a lot of work with uh, digital badges. And um, so they have a website, they log in and when they log in, they have their own personal profile as they would on Facebook or Instagram. Um, but instead of seeing, you know, posts of what they did in their social lives, they see the badges that they've earned and they can communicate as well with um, their program coordinators and they can see their peers badges as well. And um, they can start to curate their badges. But yeah, you're right. It's just a it's a website that's interactive. Yeah. So this this brings up one um, one area where there is uh, there are lots of ideas about um, ways that badges present a needed dimension, um, particularly as it relates to what contexts, what spaces are valued when we look at look holistically at what a learner is capable of and and kind of ready to do. And museum spaces. Uh, after school programs, other informal learning opportunities are not necessarily places that have been factored into the equation over the course of um, certainly the last hundred plus years of uh, the way we apply to colleges now. Um, so that's a really important one. I, I want to come back to some of what you just talked about. Um, but 
the way that you describe it, where you, you know, you come in, you see your, your, you know, you're sort of curating the things you've accomplished and, and potentially planning what's next. Um, it feels, uh, gameful. Um, and I wanted to ask you, Barry, is there an element of this that's about, um, not necessarily about, uh, gameful learning, but, uh, that draws from what we know about, um, motivations in those environments and um and ways of building experience for learners that works better <laughs> than than uh other other systems that they've used to both track their experiences and and uh, think about where they go from here it's probably worth spending a moment trying to explain what what we mean when we say gameful yeah too. great so there's a general sense that um if we can make school more like games or make learning more like games, then people will want to play them. And people often explain this in terms of fun. I actually don't like fun. It's not entirely, well, it's my kids. with your boring It's what my kids think. I don't like fun. But, um, but I, I'm not interested in fun in an educational context. I'm interested in engagement. Right. Because if you look at people that are actually doing very challenging things and they're very engaged, they would never describe what they're doing as fun. But they also would say, don't make me stop. Let me keep doing this really hard thing because yeah. I'm getting a lot out of it. So where a lot of people talk about adding things like a badge or points or rewards or levels to, you can think to, to of, school. Think of gold stars. Right, gold stars. Yeah. That's gamification. It's very superficial. And typically gamification I think of as manipulative. Like frequent flyer point programs, this classic gamification. It's it's the system trying to use some kind of reward or or gold star to get me to do the thing it wants me to do, not to get me to do the thing, not to allow me to do the thing I want to do. Yeah. So when we talk about gameful, another phrase for it is sort of meaningful gamification or deep gamification. We're not talking about adding things on top of the existing system that make it shinier. We're talking about sort of a deep redesign of the system um, in order to uh, realign the motivation elements or the, the elements that would lead to greater motivation for the learners or for anybody. And um, for us, so one of my favorite theories of motivation is self-determination theory, which talks about the basic need we have as humans for autonomy, uh, belonging, um, or relatedness, and competence. I like to say autonomy, belonging, and competence because ABC is easy for people to remember. Sure. Um, and I think autonomy is the key. So to bring this back into this sort of assessment and what people do with assessment kind of conversation and how we represent ourselves, especially as you move up in education and you move towards college, essentially we've, def we have designed elaborate systems to reduce everyone to some simple and comparable set of elements. Yeah. And we've taken the individual out of the equation. So the autonomy is being removed from learning and even worse, um, I like I, when 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 I was in high school, high school was legitimately preparation for college. Today, I think high school is mostly preparation for applying to college. Mm. It's about getting those right elements lined up so that you look good when you're compared to everybody else yeah. in that admissions process. And when we talk about things like micro credentials or badges and the kind of work Katie's doing at the Pacific Science Center, we're talking more about passion yeah. and individuality and and the challenge here is to, and I think badges is actually a great vehicle for thinking about this challenge, is to bring more of that 
autonomy, more of that agency on the part of learners back into the process to give them power to, to, to be recognized for the, to give them power to do the things they want to do by recognizing the things they do in a way that will be a part of this process for them and not simply filter it out because we don't, it's not comparable. Yeah. Can I add one Please. thing to the autonomy piece that we are really focusing on autonomy in this program because when we got there, you know, this is an amazing program. Kids are super engaged and super passionate. But they before the badge system, they didn't necessarily know where they were in the program. So the program, they would, if they wanted to know, because there are very specific positions, such as the butterfly house and the tide pool, where they are at these positions and they have to be trained at these positions to um, advance to the next more difficult yeah. position. And in order to know where they have trained, where, where they have to go next, they had to ask, keep on going back and ask their program coordinator. With the badge platform, they can sign in and see what they've done and what they've accomplished and what's the next step. And so that is an effort to give them autonomy in this program and to really see their own learning pathway and see where they want to take it. Yeah. I, I, w- I want to refer listeners, regular listeners of this podcast back to your fabulous conversation with um, Kathy Davidson, where she talked about the history of grades and where they came from. And it's a great summation. I actually, I, I played that clip from my undergraduate class about oh, grades. Great. That's great. Um, it's a great summation of all the compromises we made in order to have a, what felt like a scientific way to describe a learner, but in fact throws away all the useful information. Because I, I want to know what a kid in one of the stations in the Pacific um, Science Center knows about this. Because no, not, they don't all know the same things, but there could be multiple ways for them to know something that is sufficient to move on to the next level. Versus a B. Two B students. What do I know about them? I, I don't know what they know. It's 80 to 85% of something. But I don't actually know what they know. Yeah. I love the... Uh the story she tells from from her the research she did on uh, the meat packing oh, industry, yes. and uh, so there's actually some some correlation between the ABCD grading and the meat packing industry, and and apparently when um, when that system moved over in meat packing to grade A beef grade BCD, um, the meat packers were uh, horrified. They were like, you're going to reduce this meat to a letter grade. It's impossible. Uh, just, there's so much nuance. Um, it's a little too on the nose, this story. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, amazing. I love that story. And, and, uh, I, and yes, please, I hope people will check out that interview. Um, Kathy says so much. Kathy Davidson, who is uh, the head of the Futures Initiative at CUNY, uh, just wrote a terrific book um, called The New Education. And I hope that people will check it out or check out the uh, – if you're not up for a whole book on higher ed reform, I hope you'll check out the interview. Um, it was – a uh, I learned a ton from uh, getting to research her work and and chat with her. But she points out um, that one of the issues that we're all, I think, really interested in is that not everyone is uh, has the same ability um, 
to jump the hoops necessary to find themselves in great four-year colleges, graduate institutions, uh, et cetera, that there is a real uh, gap here between the haves and have-nots as it relates to uh, the opportunities that set us up for success in um, in very real ways. Uh, and I wonder if we can talk a little bit about um, the part of the hypothesis around uh, digital credentials as a way to reform education and, um, as that relates to that learner and uh, the issue of the gap between uh, who who of our learners are getting the most resources and most ability to succeed in these these pathways and uh, who aren't. Um, Katie, who are the learners that you guys are working in in your project? So the wonderful thing about this program is that it draws from – there are about 70 students enrolled in the program – and it draws from, they represent over 30 different schools just in the greater Seattle area, and also some homeschooling as well. And so they come from all over the place, and mostly they don't know each other. Some are from affluent uh, families and neighborhoods, and many of them are not. And um, so they bring a real diversity of many different experiences. Some of them have had a lot of coaching on how to package themselves for college, but I would say most of them have not. And we're hoping that with the badge system, this will help as long as we provide enough scaffolding and enough support that this will help all of the students to present the best um, image of themselves for college admissions officers um, as it relates to the learning that they're doing at the yeah. science center. Yeah. Uh, but again, the, I think we have to be careful about that because the danger is, is that the kids who already know how to do this and they're pretty savvy about how to present themselves. So for instance, we have this portfolio feature where you can create as many different portfolios as you want. Now, you have to be pretty savvy about what, what kind of portfolio would be the best portfolio to present to this particular college and how are you going to describe it and what badges are you going to put in it. Um, we need to provide a lot of support around that um, in order to avoid just feeding right back into this trap of um, sorting kids into those who are really savvy about presenting themselves with badges and those yeah. who aren't. Same with those who are, who are very savvy about, you know, taking AP courses and doing this particular summer experience and all of that sort of yeah. thing. Um, Barry, that came up in the session that we did at University of Michigan that, that you led. I was uh, very honored to be a part of. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? What it, This has come up, and I also want to give a chance to talk a little bit about what happened at Michigan last year. Well, I, so first I'm reminded of a just incredibly in cutting tweet, and I can't give credit for it because I, I forget who it was from. But <laughs> somebody last week said, imagine a world where we could have a DNA test that could predict your academic outcomes Oy. or something like that. And somebody retweeted it and said, we already have that. It's called a zip code. Mm. Which I was like, that. whoa, right? And, <laughs> yeah. And, and part, of what, part of what I hear you talking we about, will, Katie. We will find it and link to it. Yes. Uh, part of what I hear you talking about, Katie, is the sort of arms race. 
So as soon as we establish badging systems, then we'll have badge coaches and and there'll be a badge consultant. What are the right badges for you to put together to get into the University of Michigan? Mm-hmm. So I'm coming at this from the other end. I'm I'm not working directly with learners. Mark and Katie are. Um, I'm working with college admissions officers and thinking about the organization of the university. And I have a desire to have a much broader range of kinds of learners represented at the university. I, I'm, I'm craving diversity, basically, but in all of its variants. And I have a hunch, I have a strong supposition that there's not a perfect relationship between how you look on standardized tests and GPAs and your ability to succeed at a research university. So my interest in badges in part is driven by the, the feeling that we should be able to identify learners who would thrive at a research university who would never show up in the standard list of measures that we get. And we should even be able to, because of the digital nature of these and the networks of, of, of badge repositories that are starting to emerge, maybe we can even reach out directly to learners and say, I bet you never thought about being a science major at the University of Michigan. Let us talk to you. We'd love to reach out. And um, and that's, a, that's an unproven supposition, right? We're hoping this turns out to be true. And so we're looking for organizations like Mouse or like Katie's work with the Pacific Science Center that are awarding these credentials, essentially these badges for the kinds of work kids are doing in their passion and extracurricular driven work and trying to say, what could we, can, is there evidence in here that would be a good indicator of a student's potential for success at X college? And different colleges are going to have different kinds of standards. And so that brings us back to the workshop, Mark, which was really on that topic. And we gathered uh, two organizations that um, award credentials and badges to kids, one of which was Mouse, the other is uh, Chicago City of Learning. And when I say we, uh, the organizers of the workshop were myself and my colleague Stephanie Teasley at the University of Michigan. And we also invited uh, uh, some admissions folks to come and talk about their world, which was really eye-opening. And I think for everyone in the room who isn't part of that world, myself included at that time, um, it was stunning, the kinds of things that they were dealing with, and, and especially the scale they deal with. And the most stunning takeaway for me was that they're dealing with tens of thousands of applications. I think at the year we were talking to Michigan folks, it was 60,000 applications. But they try to do a holistic review of each applicant. And you just have to wrap your head around what that, what is that and how much time do you have for it? Not much. Um, but they're also trying to make a decision, honestly, not who are the top academic performers. That's not their, their criteria. Their criteria is who will be most successful here, which I was really impressed by. And then we, the workshop was trying to surface the kinds of design tensions that are going to shape this world. And one of the top ones was this issue of, of once we make it available, will it become, how quickly will it become weaponized? Yeah. I was, I was impressed by that, um, that it is about, uh, students having a, a full experience and, and staying with it. Um, I feel two ways about that though, because it's also part of the criteria by which universities are being measured now, right? Like if they admitted a giant number of students who might be the, the academic elite, but, uh, but are only staying a year, uh, and failing out or right. transferring out, um, that doesn't bode well for institutions. And that's not a Michigan thing. That's an everybody thing. Right. Um, 
I guess part of where it it takes us in in the conversation is just sort of how um, and we don't have time for the whole conversation today, but um, how multi-dimensional and uh, how many things sort of intersect the issue uh, that we're getting at here, uh, the way that um, the way that colleges are sort of ranked and rated is a major player in in that. Well, the the name of the podcast is no such thing, implying there's no one thing. You can't fix education by doing a thing. And I think in this conversation too, it we can't just talk about micro credentials or badges for applying to college. If if the goal is to attract a different kind of engaged learner to college, then it's also incumbent on us to change the way we organize learning in college. It'd be it'd be foolhardy to admit people who have been non-traditionally successful and make them conform to a traditional academic yeah, model. Absolutely. So we are talking about all these different elements, but it's it's clearly we're talking about a, a system change here. Yeah. A pretty radical one. Absolutely. Um, Katie, you said you were mentioning the relationship between um, the portfolio functionality in your platform and the, the credentials. And I want to make sure that that's clear. Um, and you can talk a little bit about what that experience is like, because I think one of the misconceptions of, of people who um, maybe with too much haste sort of cast digital badges aside as a real, a real um, having as having real potential for reform is that they don't realize um, they think of it as a graphic and they don't think of the data behind the graphic. And so um, can you talk a little bit about how the portfolio functionality works and just how critical that relationship is that uh, we're, we're talking about between the link itself, which is the graphic and what's behind it. Sure. So that's really key here. So um, the image, of course, is what we see first and what we start to associate with badges. But really, the thing that takes um, all of the time to really get right is what's behind um, the image and what's behind the icon. And so with our platform, um, in actually in the first uh, iteration of the platform, when students wanted to share out their badges, they just clicked on a button that said share, and then all of their badges were just displayed together. And when we did our user testing with students, they didn't really like that because they said, well, you know, there are some of these badges I don't think would be very appropriate to show to this college. I would prefer to just show maybe three or four really key badges that show my interest and my ability in uh, life science or space science. And so um, we, in our second iteration, um, designed a new feature that where they could build their own portfolios of badges and they could narrate them and explain to college admissions officers, well, here's my collection of the, these badges and they show what I've accomplished that relates to um, let's say space science. And it shows my interests and my accomplishments. And if you click on this badge, you will see exactly what I had to do to earn it. And so that's really, I think, the key power of badges, in addition to the fact that you can then share them across different platforms so they aren't just tied to one particular context. Mm. But they can um, hold a lot of information. And um, that's a great potential 
but I've spoken to a lot of college admissions offers, officers over the last couple of years, and it's also a real challenge for them because, as you were saying, Barry, they, if they're dealing with 60,000 applications, it's great that there's all this information, but they're not going to click and then read. But So that's actually a whole other topic. But, but in theory, you can click on these badges and it'll say exactly um, what, what is this badge, what does it represent, and what did the learner have to do to get it, when did they um, earn it, um, who issued it to them. And so, so these portfolios contain a ton of information that the students themselves have decided to put in there and curate um, and then share to these external audiences. So that's, that's the basic idea of the portfolio. So to build on this just a little bit, that, that was another issue that came out in the workshop because what will in a, the, the real beauty of a digital badge, so first, badges are not assessments. They're records of something you have done, and that could include how it was assessed. Yeah, they're evidence of something exactly. happening. You're right. There's no way an admissions officer is going to dig through to see the code you wrote to get the programming badge. So that means we need some middle layer where people validate these different badges that organize the different organizations you're giving out and simplify it. it would, again, back to validity, you know, the, there's a very well-developed sense of different high schools across the country. Admissions officers have gotten excellent at sort of understanding what's like where comparatively one high school is against another. So when they look at a GPA from that high school, they know what it means. And we need something like that for badges. The design tension here is how not to ruin badges in the process. Right. We don't have the answer yet. I know this, this has been a tension right from the beginning with badges is this opportunity to let millions and millions of badges bloom and be, you know, anyone can create a badge, anyone can award a badge. And that's great because we want, we want to recognize all different types of learning and all different types of contexts on the one hand, on the other hand, well, how do I interpret those badges? And you need some sort of standardization. And then we start to inch into grade territory and transcript territory. And uh, it's a real tension. And uh, it's actually, I, this is why I find badges so interesting to think about because it raises all of these interesting issues of what is learning and how do we document it and where does it take place and how do we recognize it. Yeah. And, and there's another aspect of this too. So what I, what I love about the whole space is how it really is pushing us into a conversation around competency and mastery and the subcomponents of what it, what, what it takes to master something or being able to list lots of different kinds of things that you engage in along a path to the final outcome, recognizing that there's lots of paths to the same outcome. Yeah. And um, whereas a grade sort of strips all that information away. It's like it's, you're just a B or you're just an A. And I don't know what the differences are here. Uh, the, the idea is to bring that individuality, that vari- individual variation back into the, the conversation. Yeah. The other thing that I love about what this conversation brings in, and and unfortunately the the missing um, uh, guest in this episode is the student. And um, in order for this to work, and this is kind of your wheelhouse, Katie, is really thinking about uh, the behavior of young learners and and how they 
leverage or don't leverage uh, networked spaces. Um, and one of the things that has been a real challenge to um, getting any of us uh, who are interested in this getting traction is that it's put educators, I think, um, in a design situation where we have to think so seriously about the end user and what is going to work for them and what's going to motivate them uh, to become a part of that ecosystem because we we can't do this type of um, record without their participation. So I wonder if you'd talk a little bit about some of the the hurdles that we've identified. Uh, we've definitely identified more than we've overcome. Um, but um, talk about some that we've identified and maybe some of the experiences you've had at having to sort of figure out ways around those. Absolutely. So this is actually the topic of our AERA presentation on Monday is, okay, once you've designed the badge system, how do you get students to actually use it? So we thought we started off in a really good way by designing this whole platform with students and the program coordinators. We thought, okay, we're going to build this right from the beginning with the students and their voice will be baked into it. And so that's great. And I think that we have a system that reflects what the kind of learning that the students themselves value at the Science Center. That doesn't necessarily mean they're going to actually log on. Um, And so we found actually that when we have been monitoring who is and is not using this badge platform, the first barrier, the first biggest, hugest barrier is the inability to log on. So some students forget what email they um, have used that is associated with their name at the Science Center because they have many different emails. So if they don't have the right email, then they can't log in. Um, If they've forgotten their password, they can reset their password, but maybe that email goes to their spam, which it usually does. So there's all these little, um, uh, you know, difficult um, design elements uh, that present important barriers to even using this system. Um, but then beyond that, once once they log in and, you know, what makes them care about badges? And, you know, the, f- the very first thing is, and it gets to this chicken and egg problem of badges, is that they will only care about them if colleges care about them. And but colleges don't care about them yet because nobody's using them. And so this is really challenging. Um, Students are very smart. They they don't want badges. They don't want a gold sticker just for the sake of it. And and that's not what badges are. And so they want them to be able to have real currency. And they know that college admissions officers, this is not standard right now. And so it's really tricky. Um, So the way we are uh, going about this right now is there, there are really kind of two ways you can think about badges working right now. One is internally within in the program where they're being used, and we're really trying to push that. So using the badges to help students uh, see the different learning pathways for them within the program, not even thinking about the college admissions officers, but just thinking, okay, I'm, I'm engaging with this platform because it's helping me in the program, and I'm able to connect with my program supervisors, and um, I can have that autonomy, and that's great. 
as we really push that aspect of it, we are trying to work externally on how do the, we then connect these to the college admissions process. And so the work that Barry's doing and a number of my collaborators are doing are trying to figure out how do we actually get these to make um, meet, have real currency. Um, and that's, that's tricky. That's something that we're still working on. But in the meantime, we're trying to have, make them have value internally inside the program. Yeah. W- one of the... Um you mentioned the portfolio functionality on your platform. <clears throat> and one of the things we've been working on a ton at mouse is f- figuring out um, the, the probably one of the biggest hurdles has been <clears throat> helping young people see the value of documenting their work and documenting their process as a way to trigger um uh, not that's not the right sort of uh, gives a bad technical uh, image, but a, as a way to uh, put evidence behind uh, the badge, and that we feel is actually the more important part is uh, the process of documenting the, their work and process um, makes them a reflective learner in a way uh, that you you is very hard to accomplish otherwise. And so what we have to do is engage them as much, much younger as um, curators of their own experiences and their own learning. And that's really hard to do. And it's not happening. um, We're finding in uh, school as much as we would love to see it. Um, And it's not happening for them. You know, they, the 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 idea of being a portfolio curator or somebody who who documents their work is something we really have to teach. Um, and I wonder, have you guys uncovered so, that as well? Absolutely, and we recognize this need. It's not a matter of if you build it, they, they will come, right. or know how to use it, or what to do with it. And so we actually designed a new badge for this, the the badge training badge. So we have developed a whole onboarding system now where my uh, PhD students train the the students and actually sit down with them and show them what the badge system can do. And we do sort of workshops of, well, okay, if you were to create a portfolio, who would it be for? What badges would you put in it? What would be the description? What would they want to see? And so we are helping them to, and scaffolding them so that they, we can't just expect them to know how to create a really effective portfolio, badge portfolio. And so we've built that in now. And we didn't actually even think of that when we first started off of this course. project. Yeah. But it's, I think, a really valuable piece that we've added. And um, we're actually going to really ramp that up this summer where we have some students who are going to go and do a lot of these trainings for yeah. the students. I wonder, um, we'll talk about this uh, off mic later, but um, I even wonder, this is where I think the the ecosystem of practice and scholarship in this space comes into play. We were talking about the, the, the conversation earlier of scholarship and um, I, you know, part of the benefit of our having the occasion to have these conversations is, uh, and this is not our uh, first conversation about badging, um, but I get to learn what 
what things you guys are troubleshooting and you get to learn and vice versa. Um, I think the thing that you're developing should be a badge that we can uh, fork into our system. And um, because we're trying to do that right now, it's all happening in sort of un- unstructured ways. We don't have a, a sort of badge for I'm a portfolio maven, uh, but that's the thing that uh, we need. So I hope we can uh, talk about that. It's also um, something that I think would have a lot of interest from uh, program officers at funders for both of these projects, which is the National Science Foundation. Um, and I think a uh, really important uh, sidebar slash public service announcement mm-hmm. is uh, that people don't always realize that uh, innovative work in the space of education does have, uh, for now, federal funding. Um, and by supporting folks like the National Science Foundation, that's how projects like this get done. Um, so that is uh, not the topic of this conversation today, but I think a really important note for anybody listening to this, that we support uh, those institutions and know uh, who of our electeds are supporting those institutions. Um, but back to back, <laughs> back to badges. Um yeah, so so um, there's this issue of uh, agency that uh, right. So, which is is a way of saying uh, sort of uh, ownership and uh, back to the kind of autonomy piece. Um, and we as designers, uh, as learning designers, need to figure out um, how to. Um, make the user experience such that there's as little friction as possible between um between the you know the the user and uh the experience we're trying to to get them through um because unless they're in it uh they can't take advantage of how much agency and how much uh change is possible when you start to own your own learning and and um one of the things we were talking about uh the three of us is that young people tend to not care until the institutions that they are um, living within start to care and, and help uh, lift them up. But one of the things that I am most excited about, about digital credentials is that uh, is the agency piece and is how it has the potential to um, shift to a new paradigm where uh, learners have more agency um, and more ability to sort of craft their own learning experiences and sort of determine their own way forward. So even before they've gotten to college, um, I'll describe one scenario where, which is that, uh, you know, in mouse works in the space of, especially in technology engineering and design education for middle and high school youth. One of the issues we know exists is that when you're working in an urban, you know, in a, in a city environment, if a young person's coming to us from the Bronx and gets really excited about circuitry and electronics, if they go back to the Bronx after our program and um, they're not supported with the next step, often uh, they'll go find something else that maybe they're less passionate about or or even less skilled at um, because it's supported. Um, 
But one dream scenario that those of us who are designing badge systems think about is the opportunity for a young person to use badges um, in such a way that helps them then identify the next experience. So if my badge system is connected with the next program's experience that might support them to, you know, maybe they've learned a little bit of computer science education. Now they want to go and do, um, you know, a program that focuses on visualizing data. Um, they might actually be able to do that. So suddenly now it's a uh, the machete that helps a learner blaze a path through a very thickly, you know, wooded uh you know, otherwise, uh, experience. And, and I love that vision. Um, uh, it's a really hard one to, to realize. Well, we should probably give a shout out to the work of Nicole Pinkard. Absolutely. In the Chicago city of learning. And it also spawned a range of other cities of learning, uh, now part of a network, um, that is called LRNG. And that's trying to do just what you're suggesting, which is let's connect up the science centers and the libraries and the boys and girls clubs and the after school organized things that are run by the public schools and create that network and let's work on building common platforms so that we can use um, kids demonstrated interest in things to show them things that are available to them that they may not even be aware of. And in Nicole's work in Chicago, it's been paired with some other researchers, uh, Bill Penwell in particular, looking at geographic data too, and trying to understand where, like where are we talk about food deserts in cities. Well, where are innovation deserts in cities? You know, how far does a kid have to travel to get to a, a circuitry workshop? Um, and that that the fact that kids do travel hours sometimes to get to things yeah. they want to do is one indication of just how committed they are to that work. Yeah. Nicole does an amazing presentation on, on learning deserts. Um, that is powerful. And I, at some point when, uh, uh, I developed the the magic, um, the like superpower of pinning down Nicole, which is a really hard thing to do. Not all uh, heroes wear capes. <laughs> <laughs> I, we're going to have her on to, to have that conversation. Uh, but that's a great point. So much of this is about, and, and, you know, as you said, there's no such thing as, as one solution to, um, what is a mammoth, um, it's not one problem. It's like the megazord of problems. But, but I also love the way, Katie, I love the way you talk about sort of creating the infrastructure so that kids can start to use it and to form habits. But even if we they don't have the habit now, they're generating lots of material all the time. Maybe we could build tools that would make that material available to them later when they do realize they have a need to represent something in a new way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can. I, I wonder what um, what you guys dream about as far as the ideals of how this might work. But one of the things I think a lot about is as we're reforming things like like higher education. Um, you know, why why wouldn't I be able to? You know, wh- what if? <clears throat> excuse me. The higher education experience that we present to young people is you should learn what institutions offer uniquely um go do a year at michigan for engineering then you really want to learn about um policy and social issues go and do your second two years at uh fill in the blank um 
et cetera, et cetera. And, and as we uh, dream about terms like lifelong learning uh, and what that actually means and how we build infrastructure for it, um, I love to dream about the idea, you know, not being full of shit when we talk about adults actually being able to see learning as real beyond higher education. So, like, I have a dozen things on my list right now that I need to learn to do or I just would love to learn to do. Change the oil in my car is one of them, right? This is – I just didn't take auto shop when I was in high school. And I feel like such a dummy for not. But I guarantee – even my own mechanic who happens to live three blocks from me um, – is should be my teacher and I should be able to go and and there should be a credentialing infrastructure that tells me, hey, locally, um, there's a way to go get this skill and, uh, you know, satisfy your curiosity or your uh, want to go and build skills that help you live a more fulfilled and happy life. Because, you know, dare I say it's not all about um, credentials for jobs. Um, so that's one thing that I, I dream about. I wonder if you guys have, have, uh, dreamy scenarios that you think about when you think about badges working in the most ideal form. Well, I think it, for me, it's definitely about learners having agency and being able, a lot of my work focuses on how young people develop a sense of identity and who they are as people, as learners, as members of society. And I think that badges in their ideal form could play a really exciting role in that by helping learners to see what they're interested in and, and what the next step is for them and what it could be for them and then help to connect them to the, that, those next steps, whether it's in the context where they did the original learning or where there's a new context. So I really liked how you were talking about in the ideal form, a badge could say, okay, I've, I've, I know have the circuitry skill in this one context. Now, now where do I go? And, oh, if this is the next step, that's great. Because when I was a fourth grade teacher, as a teacher, I knew exactly where I wanted all of my students to go. And I could see each learning pathway very clearly. Um, and, you know, now many years later, I can tell, oh, yeah, my students had no idea about where they were going or the learning pathway. And I, as a young teacher, I never really, didn't really bother me actually. Um, I, I, I was just so concerned as a new teacher of getting them where I wanted them to go. Now with a few more years of um, wisdom, hopefully, and, and knowledge from my research, I want kids to have more agency in where they wanna go and identifying that. And so I, I I hope that badges are are part of this solution, but I do think we have a long way to go until that becomes a reality. Yeah, uh, yeah, sadly, um, but I think it can be real. I think um, like why question rhetorical, I guess, but why is it that you have to wait until college to realize something like an independent study? Right. Like I remember the moment where someone presented that as an option and I thought, what, what do you, what, like what? An independent study. So that means what? Like I, you want me to identify the things that I want to learn and how I want to use these amazing professors 
in a way that's going to fulfill me. Um, and I was unprepared for that. And that seems a little scary to me. I mean, I experience independent studies in two ways. One is a student comes to me and says, can I do an independent study? And, and would you tell me what to do it on? Oh, <laughs> right, yes. Right. I have so many and, of those. And the answer to that is no. Yeah. yeah. But much better is I'm really interested in this thing and there's no course here on it. Right. Can you can you guide me? Can I do an independent study with you for me to do this thing? I want to. Yes. That's always yes. Yeah. Because that that's the student teaching me. That's what I want out of an independent study as a as a faculty member. I want the student to teach me something interesting. Yeah. And get and and also break you out of courses you've delivered before, you know, uh, areas of research or study that you think you know totally. It's like the independent study is a way for you to diverge and and have to stretch. Um, I love that. Uh, so anyway, a rhetorical question, Barry. Do you have dreamy scenarios you well, think about? I mean, really, amen to Katie's scenario. I think it's all about agency and autonomy, and if we could. If we could work towards an education system that was very in which the learners were very agentic, in which they were making choices about things that mattered to them, and those choices were consequential for the paths they followed, and and they they were very involved in this process, that would just it would be such a better system than what we currently have. And I I believe in my heart that it would also be a more equitable system. It would enable more people to get to the places they envision themselves than the current system, which I, I think for most learners in the current K-12 and K college system, education happens to you. Mm-hmm. So, and yeah, there's yeah. really only one path. There's, it's very linear. And, and, and if you're good at it and if you have a lot of support, you'll be fine. But badges offer in their ideal form many different paths and many different ways to get to where you want to go. And that's what another thing that really excites me. Yeah. And it's worth just noting, right, that we keep talking about badges as being this and be- they're not right. But the badge is the metaphor that lets us start to think yeah. these ways. And so if you back to the gamification idea, if you want to just add badges on top of school, they're just it's just going to be a new form of grades. So really, this conversation is driven by the desire to work on this changing the substrate of this whole system to enable more pathways and more personalization and a way for us to recognize that for individuals. Yeah. I think this is a great place to end. I hate to end this conversation because uh, I love talking with the two of you. And I also I'm, I'm uh, uh, excited that this was an opportunity to bring the two of you together. Um, yes, thank you for that. Yes, thank you. Uh, I, I um, here's here's where I want to end. I have kind of two things I want to do. Uh, one is for us to uh, answer the question: If you had one, let's let's picture um, picture our way forward as a chessboard, and uh, if there was sort of one thing we could move out of our way. Uh, either permanently or temporarily that would help us to make the most progress um, with digital credentials, what would it be? And while you think about it, 
another thing that I want to do is, given that I have uh, researcher slash scholars uh, on the show, I do think it would be right for us to um, do a little bit of a bibliography um, and just talk about some of the other folks in the country who are doing research that's that's relevant or adjacent that might help for folks who listen to this and are curious um, about what else is out there. If we could do a, a little rattle off, um, it doesn't have to be comprehensive. Um, and we don't have to format it, which is really nice. Um, who else is, is doing this work? Well, the two people slash organizations that come to mind immediately, I think I'm, Daniel Hickey um, is uh, a really important thinker in this space. He's at University of Indiana. Yeah. Indiana University. Indiana. Um, also, Sorry. I always get that They wrong. get very upset about it. I always get that wrong. <laughs> also a learning scientist who, who has deep ex- expertise in assessment as well. So that's also really helpful um, to have his uh, viewpoints. Um, and then Mozilla uh, kind of started the conversation as it is in its current form and they continue to uh, be helpful thought partners for me in thinking about the possibilities. Uh, and then I also collaborate with a, a professor, two, two researchers in the Seattle area, uh, Carrie Zhou and Teresa Horseman at the University of Washington in Bothell. Great. Um, a couple that you brought up for me, idea, we mentioned Nicole Pinkard already, hugely critical to the the sort of Genesis uh, story for this conversation. Um, uh, people like Connie Yowell, who is now uh, formerly at the MacArthur Foundation, uh, now founder and running uh, LRNG. You know, we wouldn't be here without um, Barry, others. Uh, organizations like Digital Promise yes, are, for sure. have always been very involved in portfolios, for instance. And they're doing some really neat things with educator credentialing. Yes. Um, there are there are there are innumerable ind- scholars like Katie and I. Um, June Ahn, who is at NYU at the moment, will be at University of California Irvine in the fall. Um, there are um, there are growing uh, networks like Hive, which has a number of different scholars involved and practitioners involved. Yeah. Um, there's a group called um, IMS Global. Yeah. That is very involved in standards development for higher education, yeah. and that's important as we think about, you know, barriers. Standards are important ways to reduce barriers by giving people a common target to work towards. Yeah, um, I'm trying to think of their other scholars we, we should name. There, there are many people actually involved in science museums around the country. Science museums have been a real sort of thought move, thought leaders in this space, both in the in the badges work, but also in the frequently associated maker work. Yeah. These things seem to go together. So the New York Hall of Science uh, has been very involved in both of these efforts and yep. actually hosted a workshop about a decade ago now that was one of the earliest workshops right. I'd ever been part of thinking about, about that. another NSF-funded workshop on this topic. Yep. Um, and then there's all of the adjacent kind of research that is so relevant, motivation and uh, specific research on institutional reform within these spaces. And so um, 
we're not leaving anybody out because I'm going to just say, um, see also everyone. Um, well, we hope the report from the workshop that you and I were part of will be available shortly. Yes. Um, and that has a, a, a reference list in it. It will include pointers to Katie's work. I just remembered Cheryl Grant. Um, oh, I'm so she, yes. she's done a lot of work. I think That's she did right. her whole dissertation Great. and she has also been curating a whole bibliography of uh, digital badges. Great work. We Great. should just disclaimer, say no offense to any of our fab- fabulous no. colleagues anywhere that we're not coming Absolutely. up with at this moment. Absolutely. Yeah. And I will, this will be the first of, of, um, I hope several conversations about digital credentials and, and we'll get them in there. Um, so did you guys think about it? What, what is the one piece we'd move, uh, to make the most progress? It can be obviously very specific to your work. I'll start And it's, it's, it's a more academically oriented space than the informal space, but transcripts that's changed the transcript. And I, I should say there are a number of forward thinking registrars at both the high school and the college level who are working on this problem. There's an organization called Mastery Transcript.org. I think they're at Mastery.org that are thinking about this for private schools, but also trying to build a platform that will be widely available for anyone to use. Great. And if you can, if you can tweak the transcript productively to not just list a number, then that can start to open the door for other materials to be present. And that could open the floodgates for people to start to see the the real world value of badges. Yeah. Wonderful. I think for me, it's similar because through all of my conversations with um, human resource managers who are looking at resumes and at college admissions officers who are looking at transcripts and the common app, um, I think a big barrier for them is just how do they access and easily read badges? And so that gets to interoperability. How would I actually include my badges on the common app? How would that actually functionally work? So I think some of these sort of bricks and mortar issues um, of just usability are, are super important. Outstanding. Katie Davis at University of Washington, Barry Fishman, University of Michigan, um, the two best information schools. Go, that is true. <laughs> go find them on on uh, the search engine of your choice, uh, and and uh, all of the amazing work uh, that you two do to to move this field along. I really am so grateful to have you here today. So thanks. Thank you so much. This has been really fun. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. And I'm excited to do work with Katie in the future too. So <laughs> this is this is a, yeah. gen- a, a generative exercise. Thank you. <laughs> For more info about advertising with us, charitable sponsorship, or if you have show ideas you want to share with me, find me on Twitter at M.A. Lesser. No Such Thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you, and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in episode one, an Olympic fully clothed hotel pool swimmer. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. This show would not be possible without support from the good people at Mouse, a national youth development nonprofit that believes in technology as a force for good. Find us online at mouse.org.